In Luke chapter 2, verse 10 through 11, uh, it says, An angel comes and says these words, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And what we get to celebrate in this season of Advent is we get to celebrate the coming of Jesus. And the coming of Jesus is is going to bring about good news of great joy for all people. And maybe you're here this morning and you're walking in our doors and you're going, I'm in need, I'm in desperate need of some good news this morning. I need some good news. And what I love about the Advent season and the coming of Christ is we get to celebrate some of this scandalous grace, amazing news, love, redeeming nature of our Savior. We get to celebrate all of this aspect of this good news of Jesus, good news of great joy for all people. I know I'm in need of good news. I was riding in the car the other day, and my son Jet said, Dad, if it's Jesus' birthday, why do we get presents? And I was like, good question. We're not buying you anything this year. No, that's not what I said. I was like, hey, that's, that's a good question, right? Like, if it's Jesus' birthday, why, why do we get presents? And I go, because that's just a picture of God's grace and God's love for us. Jesus comes not to serve himself, but to give of his life, to serve us, to love us, to redeem us. And with the coming of Jesus comes good news of great joy for all people. Last week, we looked at how the coming of Jesus brings us hope. And, uh, and we really celebrated. We celebrated those promises, those promises that were given to Mary that, that were spoken that, that God is with you. And not only that God is with you, but God is for you. And not only is, is God for you, but God is rescuing you. And it, and it gave us so much hope. And, and t- today, we're talking, like I said, all about love. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in John chapter 15. We're going to, we're going to cover a little bit of ground this morning. Uh, we'll find ourselves eventually getting to Romans chapter 5, uh, but we're going to cover a little bit of ground in the Bible this morning. And ultimately, the, the big idea that I'm hoping that you see this morning, the big idea that I, that I hope you come away with is, is kind of tied to hope, is our hope is certain because it's rooted in God's love for us. Our hope is certain because it's rooted in God's love for us. And my, my hope is, is to, to help show you and illustrate that through the Bible this morning. That your hope can be certain. That you don't have to be ashamed. That you can have an eternal hope today and be certain of that because of God's love for you. Now, my, my task this morning will be to make sure that I help you see that God truly loves you. That God adores you. That God didn't save you when you had your life all together. When, when you were church attending Bible reading. Like, he, he saw you. He loved you. Redeemed you. Sent his son for you. He loves you. And as certain as we can be about that from our text today, we can be as certain about the hope that he offers us. In John chapter 15... We, we come across this passage of abiding. And I love this. Uh, Wes 
brought up John 15 in our, one of our pastor meetings uh, several weeks ago. And it's been something that I've constantly gone back to. And, and there's been a lot in John chapter 15 that has really uh, just surfaced in my life a desire to, to want to abide in Jesus. And so one Wednesday morning several weeks ago, we, when we gathered together for our morning prayer time here on Wednesday mornings, we prayed through John 15. And in John chapter 15, verse 9, this verse popped out to me, and I read this verse differently. Have you ever done that? You, you read a text of scripture, and as you read that verse, it just begins to, you see it in a whole new light. You begin to, to see something that you never saw before, and I love that. I think the Holy Spirit begins to, to work in that way. He helps reveal the truths of scripture, and in verse 9, it says this, as the Father has loved me, Jesus speaking, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. The New American Standard Version says to remain in my love. To remain. It doesn't say, and this should be good news to you today, remain in your love. How many of you know your love is fickle? It dissipates. Our love at times can be unfaithful. Our love is, is not as steady as we desire it to be at times. Our love falters. Our love fades. But I love the encouragement from this text in John chapter 15 because it says, remain in my love, abide in my love. And we see that across several different passages of Scripture where we have this steady anchor, this hope that we can come to because God's love for us never fades. God's love for us never fails. God's love for us is always steadfast, is always true. It doesn't dissipate. It doesn't fade. It's never unfaithful. God's love for you is certain. And he tells for us, he says, remain in that. Remain in that love. And when we do remain in that love, what happens is then we produce fruit and there's joy and that's going to in turn lead us to love for others. And so how often I, I think I tend to focus on my love for God and not focus upon God's love for me. A lot of times I, I begin to think of like, you know, when, when I think about my faithfulness as a follower of Jesus and, and I'm evaluating, you, you probably don't do this. Maybe it's just me, but I'm going like, man, do I really love God? Do I, do I, where is that evident in my life? How, how do I illustrate that, that I have a love for, for God and and we are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind. But God is the initiator of that. God initiates that love. And we're called to remain in his love. Psalm 86, 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. God's love for you is steadfast, faithful, unshakable, immovable. And God calls you to like know his faithfulness in that. First John chapter four, verse, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And what's interesting is 
I, I want us to, to see, uh, an ex, not just see, but experience God's love this morning. And I really, I, I really believe that's the, the hope of, of Romans 5 where we're going to get to because it says in Romans 5 verse 5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts. It's experiential. Meaning, if you're a follower of Jesus today, there is a sense of experience that you can look back to to know God loves you. And so it's, it's subjective in the sense of going like, there's been an experience, but then he also goes to objective evidence and he goes, well, let me also show you how God demonstrates his love for you in Christ going to the cross for you. And so we're going to see these, these aspects. Um, but my hope is this morning is, is I want to move love of God for you from your head to your heart. Because I think a lot of us intellectually, if we're going to pass a theological quiz this morning, and I, w- I were to give you a, a survey, and I, I were to ask you this morning, does God love you? And you're like, yeah, God loves me. And intellectually, we know that. In our head, we know that. But not necessarily do we feel that. Not necessarily do we live out the implications of that Monday through Friday. And so there, there's some passages. I, I think when I, when I look at Romans 8.38, we looked at this verse last week. It says, For I'm, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, So we have this text, nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's good news. But then if we look at some other verses that, that, that Paul gave us in 2 Thessalonians 3.5, it says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. Well, why do our hearts need to be directed to the love of God if we're never separated from the love of God? 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God be with you. Well, I thought he says in Romans 8, 38, 39 that we're never separated from it. So what, what's the idea here? And I think John Piper summarizes this pretty well. He says the reason is because even though the love of God is always present with believers, we do not always experience the love of God as present. You don't know that you're loved this morning. And so when I go on Google and I begin typing the phrase, does God still love me? And you look at the prompts that it gives, does God still love me even though I keep sinning? Does God still love me even when I mess up? Does God still love me if I get a tattoo? That one's still up for debate. Does God still love me if I don't go to church? Does God still love me if I don't obey his word? Does God still love me? And and we're bombarded with these questions. And I, I think there comes a time where we just aren't certain. We're just not sure. We believe that maybe God's love for us and affection for us may have been cooled because of some behavior or lack of discipline in our life in some area. And I remember I was sitting with a, a guy this week and he says, hey, if you never read your Bible ever again, never, never 
walked in church ever again, never prayed ever again, would God still love you? And the answer to that question is yes. Now, I don't think that those things are healthy. I don't think that those things will actually like produce the love of God in your life, but God loves you not based on anything you will ever do. God doesn't look upon you and go, you know what? He's a great church attending young man and he reads his Bible and I see him up early praying every morning. I'm gonna give him my love. He loved you while you were yet sinners. How much more does he love you now that you're his child? And so this is my hope this morning is wanting us to move us to a place of certainty to know that we are loved I know sometimes it's easy for us. We make decisions that aren't the best. And maybe we look at our past life and we look at the mistakes we've made and we're filled with guilt. We're filled with shame. And we said, after all, how, how could God still love me? After all I've done, after all I've said, after, after all of this, how could God still love me? And maybe that decreases our value, throws off my purpose, it leaves me falling just a bit short. And the truth is, we all fall short. We all do. But as Sally Lloyd-Jones describes in her children's book, God's love is a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Our responsibility is to remain in it, which basically means to live consciously aware of His love. Living consciously aware of his love. Charles Spurgeon says, The only way to love God is to let God's love dwell in your soul till it transforms your soul into itself. Love to God grows out of love of God. And so this is the idea of going like, how do we move this into our lives, into our lives, into our lives? Get it out of our head, move it into our hearts. Look, if you're walking in the door this morning, And think that you got to perform in a certain way for God to love you. It's a lie. It's a lie. Let's go over to Romans 5. Let me show it to us. Romans 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified. The way I've always remembered this word is just as if I had never sinned. That's how God sees you. When we surrender our lives to Jesus and, and receive the gift of grace that he offers us, he, he stamps us justified, just as if I'd never sinned. And what he says in this is, these are the benefits. That's what he rolls out in, in chapter 5 of Romans. He's going to begin to roll out, listen, listen to these benefits. Therefore, he's been talking for the first four chapters of what it means and what it looks to have this new status of being justified. And he said, here's the benefits that it brings to a believer. It, it says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We have, we have also obtained access into this grace. We, we have access now in which we stand and we rejoice. And so we have peace. We have access to grace. We're, we're rejoicing. We see all of these benefits of this new status of being justified before the Lord. 
And what he's saying is all, all of these things are, are helping you to rejoice. Uh, I think Wes is speaking next week on joy. And so moving us to a place of, of rejoicing that with the coming of Jesus, it's going to be good news of great joy. It's going to lead us to rejoicing. And, and, and that's what I'm talking about. Like that's what I want us to experience, this peace, this, this access. I, I think about access access to grace. I went to Chipotle the other night. If you've been to Chipotle recently, there's a big sign on the door. It says, you can't come in, right? You're like, what's going on? Well, there was this thing called COVID and Chipotle's still afraid of it. And so they put this sign on the door and says, you, you can't come in. You can order online and you can come in and grab your order and then you can leave. Don't sit here. Don't hang out here. There's not access. I don't feel very loved by Chipotle, all right? I went to Home Depot, though, the other day, and Home Depot took down all their plexiglass. And I was like, hey, that's awesome. You guys aren't afraid of us anymore. And, and they were like, yeah, well, you know. And I was like, you know, half the time, people kind of leaned around those things anyways because you felt like there was always a barrier. You felt like you couldn't really discuss, have conversation. And now that barrier is removed. And I was like, I feel like we can be friends. I feel like we can connect, right? And there, there's access and I like this picture because we, we've spent a lot of time in this last season not having access to people. And here's what, we have access to grace. We have access to this grace in which we now stand. I love Charles Spurgeon says this, and it's kind of a picture of like coming to a, to a garden. And, and I, check this out, all very well. But Paul meant a dove of a brighter feather. He said, to be directed into the love of God is quite another thing from all that we can be told of it. Imagine there's a garden before us. And we look over the wall. We're even allowed to stand at the door while one hand is out to us and it's handing us golden apples over the fence or through the door, right? It says, this is delightful. Who would not be glad to come so near to this garden of heavenly delights? Yet it's something more to be shown the door, to have the latch lifted, to see the gateway opened, and to be gently directed into the paradise of God. This is what is wanted, that we may be directed into the love of God. Oh, that we may feel something of it while we meditate upon it. And it's just this picture of going, we have access. With the coming of Jesus, we have access. We have access. We can come and receive this grace and come to the Father and receive his mercy, receive his love. He says, you're going to be able to rejoice. That's one of the benefits. You're going to receive access to this grace. But then also he's writing to people who are experiencing some sense of suffering and going, well, you know, there's going to be a counter argument against this of going, hey, but, you know, what about these sufferings? And he goes, you can rejoice in those too. He says, you can rejoice in those too because they're going to produce something in you. You're going to rejoice in the hope of glory and you're going to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And this hope, the hope we talked about last week, this hope does not put us to shame. We have hope. And what he means by this idea of not putting us to shame, it's, it's a hope 
that we don't have to be ashamed of. You won't get till the end, to the end of your life and face judgment. You won't get to the end of your life and experience shame and condemnation. You won't get to the end of your life and, and, and feel like you've built your life on a faulty foundation. He's saying, if you've been justified in Christ, you received all these benefits, you have hope, and that hope is a lasting hope. You can be assured of this hope. You can stand in that hope. And now that you have the approval of the great judge that you are justified, that will be your status forever. Now, a few weeks ago, a constable came to my door and he served me papers saying that I owed a company a certain amount of money for work that they completed at my home. My kids were thinking I was going to jail. Nine o'clock at night, get a knock on the door. He comes to the door and he's standing there and, and he says, uh, we have to, to serve you some papers and uh, you're, you're being sued. And I was like, really? That's good news, right? No, that's bad news. And so I received these papers and looked over it and it was for a sprinkler repair company almost three years ago. And I received those papers. I went on. Now they have like this online uh, dispute resolution that you go. So you don't actually go to court. You get on this online chat room and you debate it back and forth. And so the plaintiff made his case. I made my case. And uh, it wasn't fair because the, the plaintiff had a lawyer. I'm working on my own here, so I'm like Google searching how to defend myself, and, uh, and, and we're going back and forth in this case, and eventually I just show the invoice that I had that shows the tech notes on there that says they canceled, meaning you didn't come to my house, you didn't do any work, and I, I put that forward in this online chat room, and the plaintiff got quiet. There was no other conversation. There, there was no one on the other end saying, you know, any, any other evidence is needed. There was no, and so the person who was kind of the mediator began asking, like, Mr. Lawyer, do you, you have any response to the invoice that's been presented? It's silent, it's silent, it's silent. So eventually the mediator told me, hey, you can go to the court and you can dismiss this case because of lack of participation. And I was like, sounds good. So I went to the courthouse. I filed lack of participation against the plaintiff. And then they got a file. Uh, he got filed and they sent paperwork. And it basically said, dismissed without prejudice. Now, I had to Google that. Because I'm like, what does dismiss without prejudice mean? And it basically means that if he wanted to retry the case, he could retry the case. We could... And, and so I'm like, well, that doesn't sound very fun. Like, we could do this all over again. And like, how many times are we going to do it? I really want this settled. I really want it like nailed down. This is a, hey, you don't owe this money. This is not yours to pay. But it's not that way. What we have here is a case that has been settled. What we have before us is God the Father is not going to go back on his judgment. He has labeled you justified, justified. How do we know this? How do we know he's not going to go back on it? How do we know that this hope is not going to put us to shame? How can we have certainty? What is the proof of that? Verse 5. Verse 5 is the proof of that. 
Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's what he says. He goes, you've been justified and being justified, now you've received all these benefits. You have peace with God, which is amazing. We could spend all day just talking about the peace of God. You, you have peace with God. You, you have access to his grace in which you're now standing. You can rejoice. Not only can you rejoice when things are going well, but you can rejoice when things are going bad. And you can rejoice because you know that it's going to produce hope. And you know that it's going to lead to these promises of what God is doing. And, and you can have certainty of this because God's love has been pouring, poured into your hearts. It's been extravagant. It's extravagant. God's love for us is what gives us that confidence. And so... We ask ourselves, well, what if I fall away from God's love? You can't. You can't. And as a mentor said to me this week, he goes, um, you know, somebody came to him one time and said like, hey, maybe you shouldn't tell people that. You shouldn't tell people that you, you can't fall out of God's love. Because then they'll abuse it, right? And I don't have to be worried about telling people that because the Bible already says that. We read in Romans chapter 6, it says, if, if grace abounds, why not just sin all the more, right? God's love for you is certain. God's love for you is steadfast. God's love for you was not given to you because God saw you on a good day. And he goes, you know what, I might save that guy today. And it just happened to be a day that you were reading your Bible. It just happened to be a day that, you know, you were really kind to the neighbor next door. It might, it might have been a day. Like we think about, like, did we fool God? Did we fool him into thinking that we were, we were better than we really are? And that's why he loved me? And he says, no. Verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time. At the right time, at exactly the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Let me ask you, who would you die for? You might be sitting next to a person. Don't tell them if you would or you wouldn't. But you might be sitting next to someone today. And you go, I, I would die for that person. Right? Like you, you would say, yeah, I, I mean, maybe for, a, for a, a good person, you know, a few would die. For a righteous person, maybe, maybe a few more would die. But who would die for someone ungodly, for someone weak, for someone who's a sinner? Who would die? God would. Human love at its best will motivate a person to give his life for a truly good person. But Christ did not come, not for righteous people or even good people. He came for rebellious and undeserving people. God's love is far greater than any love we've ever experienced on this earth. Romans 5, 9 through 11, it says, Since therefore we've 
been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved. And this is kind of, the, the argument here is from lesser to greater, is, is kind of the, how this is framed. And so he goes, we, we've been justified by his blood. Now that you've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies of God, if he loved us when we were enemies, how much more will he love us now that we're a part of his family? If he loved us when we were enemies, when he, if he loved us when we were ungodly, if he loved us while we were sinners, if he loved us while we were doing the very thing that he hated, rebellious, objects of God's wrath, but yet he would pour out his love and save us and redeem us. If he would do that, how much more does he love us now that we've been justified, now that we've been adopted into his family? See, what you see in this text is you realize, man, if God loved me when I was in that state, how much more does he love me? And that's different. I think that's the wrestle and the tension that a lot of us face is because we believe that we've done something this past week or this past month or past year that has caused us to fall out from, the love, from under the love of God. And this text proves to us, assures us, gives us this great hope that if you've been justified in the love of God, we have that experience. He goes even further and says, you know, you, you have this subjective, but let me give you not only an experiential love, let me show you the depth of his love. Jesus Christ going to the cross, verse 8. He shows his love. He demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If there was ever a time for God not to love you or abandon you or leave you, it would have been then. And he didn't. He didn't. He comes and redeems you. He comes and saves you. He comes and invites you into a family. It is logically, as one scholar says, it's logically and theologically impossible that God should love you less now, now that you're his child, than when he loved you when you were his enemy. See, God wasn't content just to simply forgive you. He doesn't just forgive you. He brings you into his family. He adopts you. And so I'm going to, again, with the, the hope and heart of really helping move this into our hearts this morning, I'm going to invite my wife Amber to come up and just share a brief testimony of how this idea of adoption, how this idea of the love of God takes deep root into our hearts, into our lives. Thanks for listening. Um, I'll try to be clear uh, without crying. Um, uh, when I was born, my mom, uh, who is a Christian, was in the midst of a pretty difficult marriage. And by the time I was two, um, she had left and divorced uh, my biological father and was on her own um, with my brother Al and I. Um, 
when I was three, she met my now dad, um, Michael. Uh, he was 20 years old, an airman in the Air Force, not a believer, um, but had fallen completely in love with my mom. Um, yeah, it was r ridiculous. He's still just as much in love with her. Um, she was five years older, had two children already. Um, they were married by the time I was four, and my dad moved us across the country from California, um, where we were from, to upstate New York. Um, my dad would begin to spend um, the next couple decades working two jobs, um, doing all that he could to, to raise um, his already family that he had with my mom. Um, in the early days of their marriage, my mom gave him a Bible. He read it, and miraculously, the Lord saved him, and he became a believer. Um, but when I was around five or so, um, my biological dad uh, tragically died in a car accident. And my dad, Michael, um, decided again to step into leadership and take responsibility on a deeper level and adopted me and my brother, Al, um, and give us his last name. Um, he didn't have to do that. Um, he and my mom had already had Eric, who's my brother, in the back running sound. He's my little brother. Love you. Um, they already had him. They, he didn't need to do that. Um, but he uh, had been moved. And again, I want you to hear at the end of this, this has nothing to do with my dad, really. He uh, had no idea what he was doing. But the Lord used him um, as a conduit and a vessel of his love for me. So um, he could have just given us his home, his protection and provision financially. That would have been enough. And that would have been, honestly, grace uh, upon grace to my mom and us. Um, but he didn't. He wanted to take it a step further and actually love me as his own. Um, my dad. Um, if you know him, he's pretty ordinary. He would say, like, nothing special about him. Um, he would call himself an ordinary, broken, sinful, needing-to-be-saved man. Um, but the Lord would use him. He would, my dad would continue not just to care for me, but would make me know and feel that I was completely his. Um, he's always uh, shown his affection for me. Hugging me, loving me, telling me uh, too often um, that he's proud of me, he loves me, just abundant grace. Um, and I would need this grace, and I would need this love, um, because there came a time in my journey during college where the strength of his love would be really put to the test. Um, I found myself in a deep web of sin and lies of my own making, um, as a 21-year-old, and through um, confession of all that I've been doing, I watched myself pretty much rip my dad's heart out in front of him, um, just with the hurt that I'd caused to himself, my mom, my brothers, my family. Um, I remember then even watching him as I was making him aware of my actual state of life, um, even then, he uh, was doing all that he could to step in and protect and provide and 
make things right for me. He's telling me, pleading with me, stay. We can do this together. We can get over this. Um, and uh, I left anyway, uh, which was also a means of grace and that the Lord had for me. I left, um, and his um, love, affection for me, even though removed for a time, it never left. I remember sitting alone um, thinking, like, I know what I could have if I came home. My dad and my mom would receive me abundantly. And thankfully, through the Lord's grace, um, his call on my life that never left, um, I was able to do that. I was able to come back in. The Lord used um, just that time in my life of a way to um, pull me back into his love for me. So um, his love and tenderness and fatherness toward me has had such an effect that most people who don't know us don't know about that. And um, they'll think they'll say things like, oh, you're so like your dad or Literally, just the other day, I had a gal even say, I love how you look like your mom and your dad. And I was like, that's awesome. You don't even know. And uh, what grace, like what love that he has for me. Um, my dad will be the first to tell you that for all that I'm communicating about him and his greatness toward me, um, he has an equal amount of a lifetime of mistakes that he made. So please don't hear um, that... Uh, Michael Savage is the best. Please hear Jesus' love for me was going to use a broken man and transform me through it. Um, he decided to use a 20-year-old man who didn't know a thing about parenting. He didn't know a thing about unconditional love. Um, but the Lord used him to show me unwavering, ridiculous, I don't deserve it, love. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, that's the end of it. I'm glad I got through that, actually. Thank you. J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. It's this picture of the love of a father and know not all of us have had uh, this picture. When we think about a dad, when we think about fatherhood, um, we, for some of us, that causes some of us to cringe. It causes some of us to, to pull back because our father was not a great picture of what it looks like for God the Father to love us, to adore us, to pour out his affection on us. But I give this story, and, and I asked Amber, I said, would you be willing to share this? Because we see the imperfect love of Michael Kasavage and the impact that that would make in her life of loving her, loving her in the midst of um, her own failures and sins, loving her and pursuing her. And our Father, God the Father, is so much more extravagant, so much more lavishing of grace and love than this. Church family, I like struggled to figure out 
how do, you, how do you tell a group of people? How do you compel them to believe God loves you? God loves you. You don't have to perform. You don't have to work. You don't have to match up to this future version. If I, if I were to get this straight or get this right or get this corrected or if I were to do this more or do that less, then God would love me. God loves you. While you were yet sinners, he died for you. He died for you. It's in his very nature. God is love. He loves you. We just get to surrender under that love. We get to surrender under that grace. And if you're wanting a story, if you're wanting a compelling picture, look at the story of the prodigal son. You go, you know what? There's no way God could love me. It's like, man, if we'll just come back home to the Father, if we'll come back under his grace, he's ready to throw a party. He's ready to say, like, you are his son, you are his daughter, and lavish you with good gifts and grace. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to experience his grace and his love. If a man could know that he was loved by all his fellow men, if he could have it for certain that he was loved by all the angels, yet these were but so many drops and all put together could not compare with the main ocean contained in the fact that God loved us. God loves you. He loves you. Rest in that today. Live consciously aware of that today. He loves you. Let's pray. Father, I can already hear almost some of the critiques and some of the pushback from a sermon pushing so much of your scandalous grace and love to the forefront that it's like, well, what about righteousness? And it's like, we got to get the, the cart before the horse. You first loved us. And when we sit under that, when we receive that, when we experience that, when we live consciously aware of your love, it produces love in us. It produces love for you, God. It produces love for others. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we would experience Romans 5.5 here this morning, that the love of God would be poured into our lives, into our hearts right here and now by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to experience that. You know, sometimes we get afraid and of feelings. We want to feel loved, Father. We want to, to know. We want to know that you are present, that you love us, that you care for us. Lord, there's no greater place to look but to Calvary where we see Jesus taking the mocking, 
persecution, eventually the crucifixion, to prove and demonstrate your love for us. And you did it while we were in a very state of sin to redeem us, to transform us, to change us. Father, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for the access we have now because of Jesus. And I pray as we celebrate in communion this morning and as we sing, that you would pour out your love into our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.